fiance's mother who was frantically preparing dinner for some dinner guests. And as the dinner guests came over, they all took their seat around the table and, and the mother asked the six-year-old daughter if she would say the prayer, say grace, say the blessing for the food. And the, the daughter responded, well, I don't know what to say. To which the mother responded, that's all right, just say what you hear mommy say. Now, everyone in the room who has children, you immediately recognize the foolishness and the danger of that statement, didn't you? Well, the little girl prayed something like this. Dear God, why did I have to invite all these stupid people to dinner? <laughs> the next sound that was heard was an open-handed slap. So you all recognize what the mother did, right? She, she had a very bad attitude about who was coming over to eat with them. And, of course, the daughter just picked right up on that. Well, we're in Acts chapter 9 this morning, and what we're going to see in our story today is also somewhat of a bad attitude, and it's also related to eating with people. We're in Acts chapter 9. We're going to cross over into Acts chapter 10 this morning. You're all familiar with the story of Acts chapter 10, a man by the name of Cornelius. Well, there's a couple of episodes that lead us up to that. We're going to study three episodes together. And the reason we're going to do that is because that's what Luke intended. He wrote all of these with the intention that they are studied together because they all have a purpose that feeds into one another. So beginning here in chapter 9, we'll begin looking at chapter 9, verse um, 20, 20 uh, I'm sorry, 32. Chapter 9, verse 32. You remember where we were last time? We just studied about the conversion of Paul. Paul has just been converted on the road to Damascus, and then we, we spent a little bit of time looking at Paul's ministry in, in Arabia and Damascus, back to Jerusalem again, and now off to Tarsus. Well, Luke takes us back now to Peter. Remember these uh, ten, or ten verses or so that we looked at last week? That, those ten verses cover a period of time that's about 15 years long. And so meanwhile, while Paul is in Tarsus now doing that ministry there, Luke takes us back to what's happening with Peter in Jerusalem and in the land of Palestine here. So beginning verse 32, we read these words. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now Lydda is a small town about 25, maybe 30 miles west-northwest of Jerusalem. Lydda is on the coast. In fact, if you've ever been to Israel, anybody ever been to Israel? If, if you've ever been to Israel, then you have most likely been to Lydda because I'm told that, that Lydda is near present-day Tel Aviv. In fact, the Tel Aviv airport is on the site of the ancient town of Lydda. So that's where they are. They're on the coast, west, west, north. This is a very, very Gentile area. It's in the, the land of Palestine. It's in the promised land. But nonetheless, this is an area that is dominated by Gentiles. And so Peter goes here. Verse 33, he, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So you know, we don't know if Aeneas is a Christian or not. We're not told. But we assume that he's not because all of the, the healings, Aeneas is about to be healed, all of the healings that take place in the Gospels and in the Acts, they're all unbelievers that are healed. Because... Physical healing, remember, is a, is a picture. It's a sign of spiritual healing, of salvation. So he finds this man, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. So we don't know how old Aeneas was, but we do know that he rose up and, and made his bed. If he was a teenager, then that would have been the first miracle of the story because he got Aeneas to make his bed there. If you're... The parent of a teenager, you know how hard that is. I'm, I'm not the parent of a teenager, but I used to be one, so I know how hard that was. But he tells Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. So we're reminded there of some very striking similarities between what Peter just does here and what Jesus Christ does on a couple of occasions. You remember Mark 2, the paralyzed man that they lower down through the roof, and Jesus heals him and tells him, rise and Take up your bed. Likewise, John 5. You remember the man who was by the pool at the sheep gate and the, the waters in the pool would stir and he never did have anybody to help him get into the waters to be healed. And so Jesus heals him and he tells him also, rise and take up your bed and walk. And that's what got Jesus in trouble because that was a Sabbath. 
And he told the guy to take up his bed on the Sabbath. So we recognize some similarities here, some parallels between what Peter just does and what Jesus did. Now, verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw this, and they turned to the Lord. Now, between verse 35 and verse 36, we could insert the word meanwhile. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, because what's taking place here is taking place at the same time that Peter is healing Emmaus. So verse 36, now there was in Joppa, Joppa is, is maybe about 8 or 10 miles from Lydda. It's also in this very distinctly Gentile area. In this uh, place, Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Both of those names mean gazelle. So this lady Tabitha, or Dorcas is her Greek name. Tabitha is her Aramaic name. Her name means gazelle. So she's probably a woman of grace. She um, was full of good works and acts of charity. So she was the sort of the exemplary Christian. Full of good works and acts of charity. She lives her life for others. Her life is a life of giving to others instead of taking from others. So verse 37, In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So she passes away. They wash her and they put her upstairs. And they have heard that Peter is in nearby Lydda. So they send for him with this message, come to us without delay. Now, what does without delay mean? What does it mean to you? Without delay means... Now, within the next 15 minutes, right? That's what we think of as without delay. We live in a different world than the world that Peter lived in. Without delay to Peter did not mean even today. It meant within the next few days. If we look down to verse 20, verse 20 of chapter 10, later on in the story, God is going to speak uh, to Peter directly. Verse 20, God says to Peter, Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. And then if we look down to verse 23, the next day he rose and went away. So that was without hesitation to Peter the next day. It was a different world. Life sort of moved at a different pace. In addition to that, the message that they send to Peter, think of this. Um, they hear that Peter is in nearby Lydda, and so they send some people with the message. Those people have to walk eight miles, maybe ten miles. Once they get to Lydda, They've got to find Peter. How are they going to find Peter? Go door to door, maybe. You know, is there a guy named Peter here? Has anybody heard of a guy named Peter that's in town? So then they finally find him, and they've got to walk back. And nobody walked at, on, at night in those days. You didn't do it. Was, it was too dangerous to walk at night. So clearly, Peter does not go to Joppa the same day. It's at least the next day that Peter goes to Joppa. Now, here's a question. When did Jews bury their dead? The same day, right? Remember the whole thing about Jesus. They had to bury Him the same day before the sun goes down. It was Jewish tradition that a body was buried the same day. But they wash her and they put her upstairs. And why? We're not told, but the implication here is that these disciples were anticipating something. They were anticipating that Peter would do something. And so they didn't bury her yet in hopes that Peter would come and something would happen. That's the implication that we receive from this, which is an incredible thing that these disciples seem to have had the hope. They seem to have sense that God wanted to do something of this nature um, in this occasion. And so they, they wash her, they put her upstairs, they send this message to Peter, come without delay. So verse 39, Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, or, I'm sorry, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So Dorcas apparently was a seamstress, and apparently she made mixed tunics and garments and, and probably gave these to people, her friends and, and her fellow Christians. And all the people are here at the wake, crying and mourning, and they're all showing what Dorcas made for them. Look, this is the tunic. The Dorcas, the, she made this for me. She made this uh, for me on such and such occasion. Isn't this beautiful? So they're all showing these, these tunics. Verse 40, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, 
Notice the body. She's definitely dead. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Notice all the detail. You get the sense, don't you, that Luke is there in the same room. He's not. Luke is not here now. But you get the sense that you're reading a first-hand account. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So there's the miracle that the disciples apparently were anticipating or hoping for, maybe praying for. Tabitha is, is raised from the dead. This is Peter's one and only resuscitation. It makes us wonder, are we to expect this sort of thing? Are we to expect that people of the Lord who pass away, that it's not uncommon that they get raised back to life? In other words, is it, is it an indication that something's wrong today? that we don't see people being raised from the dead. Are we to expect this sort of thing? No, we're not, are we? We're not to expect this because we know, first of all, we talked about how this is a very transitionary time in the Acts. God is transitioning us into the church age and so He's doing some things for some special purposes that are not going to be His normal way of doing things once the church and once His Word are established. So we know that this is a very transitionary time. We know that we're not apostles. I'm not an apostle. God, God does not have apostles today in the New Testament sense of the word apostles because His church has been established. That was what the, the apostles were doing. were establishing His church. And so we know that, uh, that uh, by the way, a, a, a pastor is not a bad pastor if he's never raised somebody from the dead. I, I'm, not, I'm not to be expected to go to, to the funeral home and pray over a body and the body gets up out of the coffin. That, that's, that's not normal for us today. Even if there were apostles today, even if God does still do this today, I mean, when we, we know God certainly can when He desires, but even if this were the way that God was still working today, it's still not as though we should expect this as a normal thing. Do you realize how rare resuscitations were in the New Testament? There are only five, not including Jesus, of course. There's only five. Jesus did three of them. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the son of the, the widow. Peter does one right here. And Paul does one. He's going he's gonna to raise the guy Eutychus. Remember, you guys are going to like it. When we get to the story of Eutychus, you remember the story? Paul's preaching so long, he's preaching past midnight. This guy Eutychus is sitting in the window, falls asleep, falls out the window, dies, and Paul raises him back, back to life. So you guys are going to get a kick out of that story. But, but that's the only five resuscitations in the New Testament. So even in these days, it wasn't as though this were common, which makes it all the more remarkable that these disciples in Joppa had this on their mind, that they were, were moved to sin for Peter. They sensed that this is what God wanted to do. And so, and so um, Peter comes and... Um, presents her alive. Verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So once again, kind of like the story previous to this, after the miracle takes place, the word sort of spreads, and people hear about this, and people believe upon the Lord. We notice here also some, some other similarities, some similarities between this story, the previous story, and some similarities to, to what happened when Jesus was, was on the earth. This story in particular, I think there's some real similarities here between the raising of Dorcas and the raising of Lazarus. You remember how Lazarus dies when Jesus is away. And they send for Jesus and it takes them a few days to get there, right? In the same way, Peter is not here. They've got to send for Peter. Peter has to come. So that's kind of reminding us there of the story of Lazarus. Likewise, remember the, uh, remember the, uh, the, uh, the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. You remember how Jesus gets there and everybody's inside and they're all weeping and mourning and Jesus puts them outside and He speaks to her. Remember what Jesus said? He said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, rise. If we were to change one letter, Peter says, Tabitha kumi. If we were to change one letter to Talitha kumi, it was exactly what Jesus said. 
And so in the same way Peter puts them outside, he says words that are almost identical to what Jesus says. She rises, Peter presents her alive. Very much like the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Incredible similarities there, isn't it? Remarkable similarities. But have you noticed how many similarities we've come across in the story of Acts? How many similarities between what's taking place here and what took place when Jesus was on the earth? These two episodes, plus um, what about, for example, Philip? Remember how Philip was walking along the deserted road and he comes alongside the, the Ethiopian and he opens the scriptures to the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian understands them. He's baptized and immediately upon baptism, Philip disappears. Likewise, Jesus comes alongside of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, another deserted road. Jesus opens the scriptures to them. Then he serves them the supper in the breaking of the bread. Jesus disappears. Very much like what happened with Philip a few chapters ago. Or what about Stephen? The incredible parallels that we, that we saw from the story of Stephen. Stephen is described as, as, as a servant. Jesus was a servant. Stephen is the only other person in the Bible that's described as being full of grace and truth. Jesus and Stephen are the only two people the Bible describes that way, full of grace and truth. Stephen does these mighty works, these great signs and wonders. So did Jesus do these. Stephen's described as being full of wisdom. So was Jesus full of wisdom. Stephen's preaching enraged his enemies. So did Jesus' preaching enrage his enemies. Stephen's enemies had him arrested and brought to this false mockery of a trial, just like Jesus. And false witnesses come and lie, just like Jesus. And then Stephen's put to death and he prays for the forgiveness of his enemies, just like Jesus. And it's incredible how many similarities we saw, how many parallels between Stephen and Jesus that we saw. And that's just a couple of episodes. That's not even to talk about you know, the, the healing of the blind man in chapter 2 and how, how similar that is to Jesus' healing of blindness. And so on and, and so on we could go. What are we to make of all of these similarities and all these parallels between what we see now and what we saw in the Gospels? Here's what we're to make of it. Let me take you back to the beginning of Acts. Remember when we first started the story of Acts? We said that the story of Acts is the story of Jesus' continued work. Jesus was here in the flesh on earth doing what He was doing. He leaves the earth and now His Spirit mediates the presence of Jesus to continue what Jesus was doing before. Or, you can think of it this way. When Jesus was on the earth, the Spirit was doing these things through Jesus. Now Jesus has ascended to heaven. Now the Spirit is doing these same things through His church. So the reason it looks and sounds so much like the Gospels is because the same one's doing it. And I think that's what we're supposed to see here. We're supposed to read this and, and be reminded, oh yeah, that's what the Spirit did over here. Yeah, that's what Jesus did over here. It's like the same person is doing these because the same person is doing these. So all these similarities point us in that direction. So many believe in the Lord. In verse 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Now that seems to us like a throwaway kind of verse. I mean, it seems like, oh yeah, and by the way, this is where he stayed when he was there, right? Doesn't seem to be very important to us, but actually let me suggest to us that that's the most important verse in the chapter. Stephen stayed with one Simon a tanner. What does a tanner do? Tans hot. Right? What do you do when you tan hides? What do you work with when you tan hides? What kind of animals? Dead ones. Right? Why are you whispering? Dead animals. <laughs> A tanner works with dead animals all day long. That's how you tan hides, is by working in contact with dead animals. Now, what did Jews think of those who touched dead animals? They were unclean, weren't they? And once a Jew touched a dead animal, do you remember how long they were unclean? Several days. So there was a waiting period before they could be cleansed. And so someone who touched a dead animal, for several days after that, you were ritually unclean. And so a tanner works with animal skins and animal carcasses every day. Which means that this man is perpetually unclean. He's always unclean. He's never ritually clean. He can never go to the temple. 
This man is perpetually unclean. This man, Tanner's, would have been what the Pharisees called sinners. You remember how in the Gospels we keep hearing these Pharisees talk about sinners? I'm glad I'm not a sinner like that man, right? What did the Pharisees mean when they talked about a sinner? They weren't talking about somebody's morality. They weren't talking about the fact that so-and-so is a sinner because he lies or because he, uh, he's not kind to animals. When a Pharisee described a sinner, they were talking about someone who was, due to their occupation, perpetually unclean. Prostitutes were perpetually unclean. Tanners were perpetually unclean. That was a sinner to a Pharisee. It had nothing to do with how you lived your life. It had nothing to do with what kind of person you were. It had everything to do with the fact that you were constantly, daily, you were perpetually unclean and could not come into the assembly of God's people. And that's this team. So Peter goes to his house and stays in his house. Think of the stench. Think of the smell. This is not the days of refrigeration. Think of the smell at Simon's house. You know, the Jews required tanners to have their houses located a minimum of 50 cubits, or 75 feet, outside the city limits. That's what they thought of tanners. Think of the smell and the stench. Think of what goes through Peter's mind as he goes to this man's house. Because remember, Peter's a Christian, but Peter is still a good Jew. He still observes all the dietary laws, as we'll see. He still observes all the ritual laws. And so Peter goes into this man's house that is always unclean, which makes him ritually unclean as well. Think of what goes through Peter's mind as he goes here. Have you ever been to somebody's house that was just disgusting? I mean, just not just messy, not dirty. I mean, disgusting. Once I, I, when I was in Colorado, my job required me to go to the house of a man. This was the most disgusting house I've ever been in my life. This, in this house, this man had a pet monkey. And I don't know if you've ever been around monkeys outside of the zoo. They are disgusting creatures. They are extraordinarily filthy. And so this man's house was filled. Every corner was monkey droppings. And this was a two foot tall, maybe 32 inch tall monkey. It was big droppings. And so you see monkey droppings everywhere. Bugs that go along with that. And you know that when you see monkey droppings, you know what else is there that you don't see. This was disgusting. I felt like I needed to take a shower when I left. I think that that's probably how Peter felt here. I think the Jewishness in him was just making the hair on the back of his neck stand up. But he goes here into this man's Peter's or this man Simon's house to stay here with him. Do you, do you see something here? Do you see what God is doing? You see the progression in Peter's heart. You see what God is doing in Peter's life? Where was Peter before this? If we go back before the story of Paul, where was the last place we saw Peter? Samaria. He went to Samaria. Remember, he and John go to Samaria to check out what's going on. And they prayed and the Holy Spirit came. He's in Samaria, the place that the Jews hated most of all. Now he's, he comes from there to Lydda which is a place of Gentiles. It's, it's nearly all Gentiles there. He commits this act of mercy and grace upon a man. We don't know if he was a Jew or a Gentile, but he was amidst the, an area of Gentiles, which was equally disgusting for Jews. And he goes from there to another place of Gentiles, Joppa. He commits another act of mercy on a Jew, but again, he's surrounded by Gentiles, a, equally disgusting for a Jew. And then he stays in the house of this man, Peter, or this man, Simon who is a tan. God is breaking Peter's prejudice. He's breaking Peter's elitism. He's, he's breaking Peter's attitude. Remember the lady who had the bad attitude about who was coming over to eat dinner. Peter has an attitude that's like that, just much worse. God is softening that and He's breaking that down and He's preparing Peter for what happens in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So here, the, the scene now switches over to Caesarea. Caesarea was a military town. We read here that the Italian cohort was stationed there. That meant that there were at least 6,000 Roman troops stationed there. And all of the trappings that go along with that. Um, we know how military towns work. 
If you've ever been to Fayetteville or Jacksonville, then, then it would be very much like Caesarea. The whole town existed for the military. The military was what brought commerce to the town. That's what supported the town. Everything there was about these Roman soldiers. So this town of Caesarea was extraordinarily Gentile. It was extraordinarily pagan. It, it, was, it was a place that Jews did not feel com comfortable in. So the Italian cohort is here. This man named Cornelius is there. Cornelius was a centurion, which would place him about, uh, about equivalent to uh, maybe a higher-ranking non-commissioned officer or maybe a warrant officer. He's in charge of 100 men. So he's no small guy, but he's definitely no big, big guy either. So he comes here to this man, Cornelius. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So look at how it describes Cornelius. Fears God, gives alms generously, prays continually to God. What would we call Cornelius today? We'd call him a pillar of the church, wouldn't we? We'd call him a leader of the church. But the New Testament calls him a lost sinner in need of salvation from God. Because you see, all these things that, that Cornelius was doing, the giving generously, the, the praying, those things can be faked. And so Cornelius was doing these things. I, I believe that God obviously is drawing Cornelius into a relationship with him. God's working in Cornelius' heart. But make no mistake, Cornelius is not God's child. Cornelius is an unbeliever at this point. He's a God-fearer. God-fearers were known in this day as, as Gentiles who believed that the Jewish God was the true God, yet they didn't want to be circumcised and they didn't want to follow the dietary rules and everything. So they weren't Jews, but they still believed that the Jewish God was the true God. Kind of a weird situation to be. So that's who Cornelius was. He believes that the Jewish God is the real God, but he's not circumcised, which makes him to Peter also unclean. Right? Somebody that he cannot go into his house without becoming unclean himself. And so this devout man who fears God, prays continually to God about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. Again, that's the reaction we always see when humans encounter divine holiness. When humans encounter angels or God, it's always fear and terror. In terror, he says, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, does that mean that God heard Cornelius' prayers? Well, let me put it this way. Does that mean that God heard Cornelius' prayers in the same way that he hears yours? It does not mean that, does it? God is all-knowing. God's all-hearing. God certainly hears every prayer that Cornelius utters in the sense of knowing what Cornelius is saying, what he's doing, and knowing what's in his heart. But God does not hear the prayer of an unbeliever like he hears the prayer of his children. Why not? Because his spirit is in us and his spirit is the one who sanctifies our prayers and lifts our prayers directly to God. The mediator, Jesus Christ, is the one who puts our prayers before the Father. God does not hear the prayers of an unbeliever in the same way that he hears the prayers of his children. But nonetheless, God knows, obviously, what Cornelius is saying here and what, he, what he's been doing. So his, his uh, prayers have ascended as a memorial before God. Verse 5, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Notice, by the way, how much happens in the story of Acts when people are praying. Kind of a theme that we see over and over is when things happen, it seems to be that people are praying when they happen. So Peter's praying, verse 10, and he became hungry, which gives us a little bit of an indication as to how long Peter was praying. He was praying so long that he needed to take a break and eat a meal because he prayed so long that he became hungry. I wonder how often you and I pray so long that we need to stop and eat a meal and then go back to praying. But Peter has to do this. He becomes hungry. He wants something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, which is different from 
falling asleep and having a dream. Peter's not asleep here, he's awake. And he's seeing this vision, this trance. And in this he sees the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, clean and unclean animals. Verse 13, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. That's an amazing statement that just came out of Peter's mouth. Let me read it again. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Let me rephrase that. Lord, I will not listen to what you say because I know your law. Strange thing to say. Lord, I will not listen to what you're telling me because I'm too good of a person. Because I keep your law too well, so I won't listen to what you're saying. That's ludicrous, isn't it? It's very strange when we think about the words that just came out of Peter's mouth. No, Lord, I won't do this because I know your law too well and I follow it too well. You hear the self-righteousness in Peter's voice. I've never eaten anything clean, unclean or common, so I'm not about to do this now. You see, Peter has a very bad habit, and I know you picked up on this. Peter has a very bad habit. Peter has the bad habit of saying the words no and Lord in the same sentence. He does this quite frequently, if you've noticed. Remember back when Jesus was, uh, was on the earth? And remember how Jesus started to tell them, hey guys, we're heading to Jerusalem. That's where we're going. And when I get to Jerusalem, the Gentiles will arrest me. They will beat me. They will mock me. They will kill me. And I will rise again on the third day. And what does Peter do? No, Lord, no. I'm not going to let that happen. No, that's not going to happen to you. You see, in his ignorance... Failing to understand what Jesus was telling him, his response is, No, Lord. Or what about the garden? Jesus is speaking to them from the prophet Zechariah, and he says, This night the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. You will all scatter tonight. What does Peter say? You're wrong about that, Jesus. Not me, not good old Pete. I'm right here with you. I'm sticking with you like glue. Not understanding. Peter's response is, no, Lord. It's a response that's perplexing. Jesus was perplexed over this kind of response. Remember what He says in Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Jesus is thinking, this, this, is, this is a strange thing, that you call me Lord and don't do what I say because the two of those things cannot go together. If I am your Lord, then you do not tell me no. If I'm your Lord, your answer to me is yes. So either I'm not your Lord, or you need to do what I say. Some of us have, at times, the same bad habit as, as Peter, right? Some of us have the same problem that Peter seems to have here. And that's the problem of speaking with our mouth that Jesus is something to us that our actions tell everybody that He's not. It's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, is outwardly trying to make people believe that we're really holier than we really are. And so we all have been guilty of this at some time. Maybe we're, you're guilty of this now. Of saying things that Jesus means to you that your life doesn't hold up to. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But not so much that I would give up this one sin that I really like. Or not so much that, that I would turn from this way of thinking that I was displeasing to God. Or not so much so that I would, I would love Him more than I love this particular way of life or this particular sin. You see, we do the same sort of thing. We call Jesus Lord, Lord, and do not do what He says. And so Peter has this habit here, and it comes out of him again. By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. You hear the, again the self-righteousness in his voice. Not me. I'm too good for that. I follow your law too well. Because by the way, it is your law, isn't it, God? Wasn't it? I mean, wasn't it God's law that Peter and the, the Jewish nation not eat of those unclean animals? Wasn't that God's law Himself? So is it, is it perhaps true that God was really just testing Peter 
Was Peter right to think maybe this is a test? Maybe God's testing me to see if I really am loyal enough to him that I would, I would still, even in a trance, I would still say, no, not me, I'm not going to eat those no matter how good that lizard looks. Could that be possible? No. Why? Because of verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made, past tense. What God has made clean, do not call common. You see, God's already taken care of the dietary laws and regulations that used to prevent Peter from eating those unclean animals. God's already taken care of that. And Peter was there. You remember, it, it, it happens a couple times in the Gospels. Mark 7 is one instance that I put in your notes. Jesus tells this, uh, this parable. What, what happens is, Jesus is being criticized because His disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. And you remember that story in Mark 7? It wasn't anything about cleanliness or germs or anything like that. It was a ritual, ceremonial washing that they weren't doing before they eat. And so the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, how come your disciples are not ritually washing, washing their hands before they eat? And Jesus says, it's not what goes in a person that defiles Him, it's what comes out of a person that defiles Him. And then later on, Jesus takes His disciples, the first of which was Peter, and He explains to them what He taught them. And He says, when something goes into a person, it goes to the stomach and it's expelled out. That doesn't make a person unclean. What makes a person unclean is what comes out of them. And by this, He declared all foods clean. Peter was there. Peter heard that. Peter knew it. Peter either chose not to obey it, he didn't understand it, he forgot it, or whatever the case may be, but Peter has been given that information before. And so by Peter's continual hanging on to these Jewish regulations, after Jesus has abrogated them or fulfilled them, by doing this, what Peter's really doing is really, he's really holding on to his self-righteousness, but here's what he's really doing. He's really holding on to that which allows him to be a hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? Someone who wants other people to believe that he's holier than he really is. The dietary laws are allowing Peter to hold on to something that separates him from other people. From unclean people. From people who aren't like him. Because you see, I think Peter realizes what this vision is really about. We realize what this vision is about, right? This vision has nothing to do with animals. It's not about what you eat. This vision is about people. And Peter knows that. God has prepared Peter to hear this. Peter knows that that's what the vision is about. The, the, uh, the, the vision with the four corners of the sheet, that was so clear. The four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, and all kinds of animals. Obviously, this is talking about all kinds of people. The, the voice says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. What did Jesus say to Peter? I will make you fishers of men. Peter couldn't have missed this. Peter knows that this is about people. And this is about whom will you take the gospel to and whom will you allow to perish. Because Peter here is, is just like the prophet Jonah. Remember the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah who would rather run from God than to take God's message of salvation to a people that he didn't like. Peter's just like that right now. Because you see, Peter lived in a different world than us. We live in a very anti-Semitic world. We see the hatred of Jewish people all around us. It seems as though everybody hates Jews. Now I know that's not true. Everybody doesn't hate Jews. But when you, sometimes you look around and it seems like the whole world hates Israel. But Peter's world was different. In Peter's day, everybody didn't hate Jews. The Jews hated everybody else. The Jews thought that the Gentile was so subhuman as to not even really be a human being. A Gentile wasn't an animal. It was above an animal. But it certainly wasn't on par with a real human being. That's the way, that's the way Jews thought in that day. That they were subhuman beings. A Jewish midwife literally broke the law 
if she assisted in the birth of a Gentile baby. The Jews had a name for Gentiles in this day. It was, it was the word goyim. Goyim literally means nations. But when the Jew would say that word, he would spit right after saying that word. Because he was so distasteful in his mouth to say the word nations. And then Jesus says, Go to the nations. Now I think at this point, Peter really wants to believe that what Jesus meant was to go to the Jews that are living in the nations, which is what he's been doing. He goes to Lydda, to the Jews there. He goes to Joppa, to the Jews there. But he has not yet caught on that what Jesus really meant was go to the nations themselves. Go to a people that you don't like. Go to a people who are very different from you, very distasteful to you. Go to a people whom you hate. Because you see, at this point, Peter, he's just content to let the nations go to hell. He's content to go to the Jews and take the gospel of the Messiah to the Jews, but he's content to let the nations go straight to hell. We today are so much like Peter in so many ways. We don't have clean foods and unclean foods. And we don't believe that people are clean and unclean like Peter did. But in the same way, we could take our own sheet and we could bundle onto that sheet all kinds of people, all kinds of races, all kinds of nations, all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of groups of people that we could put them right in that sheet. And we may not call them unclean and we may not hope that they go to hell, but we sure don't love them enough to do what it takes to keep them from going. Because they're not like us. They're different from us. Speak a different language. Their skin color is different. Maybe they belong to a different political party. Maybe they have views that are different from our views. And so we may not wish them to go to hell, but their eternal soul is somehow less important to us than the eternal soul of people who are like us. We can be very concerned about people who are like us, but people who are unlike us, our level of concern is just a little bit less. This is the heart of Peter. This is the heart of the church. Because at this point, the church is going to begin to wrestle with the problem, with the questions called the Gentile question. And it goes like this. Can a Gentile be saved by a Jewish Messiah? And that's a question that the church is going to wrestle with for decades. But in fact, the question is really bigger than that. And the question is really one that we're really still wrestling with today. The question is not so much, can a Gentile be saved by a Jewish Messiah? But the question is, do I want a Gentile to be saved by a Jewish Messiah? What am I willing to do to take salvation to a Gentile, salvation that is of a Jewish Messiah? Do I really want those people to be saved? Or am I like Jonah that I really, in my heart, don't want them to be saved because they're not like me? But you see, the church, as it wrestles with this, we're going to see that they're going to answer the question right. And we're going to see that Peter's heart is going to change. And thank God that it does. Because had Peter not had this change of attitude here, you realize that you and I would be outside of Christ today because you and I are the people that Peter hated. Unless you're a Jew, I don't think any of us are. Then we are the people that Peter hated. And had the church not wrestled with that and overcome it and saw that the Gospel transcends all boundaries, all borders, every wall that we could put up, the Gospel transcends it. The end of Paul's letter to Rome, to the Romans. Paul takes about a chapter there, a chapter and a half, to greet all these people in the Roman church. And all these people in the church that he's greeting, we find people that are all over the board. We, we find slaves, and we find slave owners. We find wealthy people, and we find penniless people. We find people who are the social elite, and we find social outcasts. And they've all become one in the Roman church because they're all united together under Christ. 
It's like Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. All are one in Christ because the gospel transcends every border that we put up. You like Italian salad dressing? You know Italian salad dressing when you use it? What do you have to do to Italian salad dressing before you use it? You've got to shake it up, right? Why? Because it's oil and water. And oil and water don't mix, do they? They separate out. And so if you don't shake up the, the Italian dressing, you're just going to get the oil that's on the top. You're not going to get what it's supposed to taste like. So you have to shake it up, put it on your salad, put it back on the table. What happens to it within a few minutes? It separates out again because the oil and the water don't want to be together. They want to segregate. They want to go to their house over here and their house over here. And they want to go to their school over here and their school over here. And they want to go to their church over here and their church over here because they're not like each other so they don't want to be with each other. They would rather be apart. They're a lot like people. You ever notice that? That people want to segregate themselves. Back in the 60s, we had segregation laws in this country. But you know what? We don't need laws for people to segregate themselves. They naturally do that. You can go to any town and you see the same sort of thing. There'll be a section of town that's that's an African American section of town. There'll be a section that's a Hispanic section. There'll be an Asian section. There'll be a white section. Especially big cities. People naturally separate themselves out into groups of people that are like them. They, go, they, they like to, to do things together. They like to go to the same churches together. They like to segregate themselves like that. They're like Italian salads. Who likes mayonnaise? You like mayonnaise on your sandwich? What do you not do to mayonnaise before you spread it on your bread? You don't shake it up, do you? You don't stir up mayonnaise. Why not? Because it doesn't need to be stirred up, right? There's nothing separated that needs to be remixed. Do you know what the main ingredients of mayonnaise are? There's three. Anybody know? Oil, vinegar. I'm going to hold off on the eggs. You're right. I'm going to hold off on the eggs. Oil and vinegar. Oil and vinegar is basically water. Why don't the oil and water in mayonnaise separate? You ladies that cook, you know. Because of the egg, the egg yolk. An egg is called an emulsifier. An emulsifier causes things that don't want to be together to want to be together. You've never taken a jar of mayonnaise out of your refrigerator that you bought two years ago and had to stir it up. Because the oil and the vinegar stay together forever. Because they want to now because of the emulsifier, the egg yolk. The gospel is the emulsifier. The gospel is the egg yolk that makes the oil and the water want to be together. The gospel is what transcends all of those borders. Which is why I'm so burdened for the church today. Our church and thousands of churches like it. Our church, let's just be honest folks, our church is way too white. We are way too white. Other churches are way too black. Other churches are way too brown. Why does this concern me? Why does it concern me that we segregate ourselves in, in church the same way we segregate ourselves in life? I mean, what's the big deal? Some people want to worship differently and they're more comfortable worshiping differently than us. What's, up, what's wrong with people just sort of separating out like that? Because the degree to which we gather into groups that are like ourselves is the same degree that the gospel has not penetrated. Because the gospel makes that which is not alike want to be together. That which previously didn't want to be together wants to be together now. The gospel is what makes us read Revelation 7 and we see that for eternity, before Jesus Christ, it will be all tribes and all nations and all languages and all colors and we will be together worshiping Christ forever, forever. It is the Gospel that sees that and says, why can't we be like that now? 
Why must we segregate ourselves in church the same way that the world segregates itself? Why can the gospel not be different? Why can the gospel not show that people of different races and different classes and different groups can come together under Christ and love one another and want to be together? That is the emulsifier of the gospel. And to whatever degree that we in the church look homogenous is the same degree to which the gospel has not penetrated. And we in Jesus' church have not sought that out. Have not sought to be with those not like ourselves. And bonded together in a bond that like mayonnaise never comes apart. Never separates. Far stronger than mayonnaise. A bond far stronger than any human bond. You realize the bonds of the family of Christ are stronger than any other, any other earthly bond. And those bonds, those bonds bring us together and keep us together in love and in unity. And that's what makes the church look different. That's what makes the church different from its culture. And that's what we see beginning in Acts chapter 10. God's not done with it. This is a big work that he's going to have to do in the heart of Peter and in the heart of the church. And we're going to see that Peter's, Peter's going to regress. Later on, Paul's going to have to rebuke him because he's taken a few steps back. But we're going to see that God's going to start this work in his heart. And God desires for this same thing to be in our hearts today. He desires for that which normally would have nothing to do with each other to be bonded together in Christ.